Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Sylvie Fortin, an independent art curator and critic, and the current curator in residence at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts. Sylvie Fortin is an independent curator, researcher, critic, and editor based in Montreal, New York, and Omaha, where she is the 2019-2021 Curator-in-Residence at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts. She was Executive Director and Artistic Director of La Biennale de Montreal, Executive Director and Editor of Art Papers in Atlanta, and Curator of the 5th Quebec City Biennial. Her critical essays and reviews have been published in numerous catalogues, anthologies, and periodicals, including Art Forum International, Art Papers, Art Press, C Magazine, Flash Art International, Freeze, Fuse, NKA, Journal of Contemporary African Art, and Parachute. She initiated PASS, the International Biennial Association's journal, and edited its inaugural issue in 2018. She is editing the fall 2020 issue of Public Journal, based in Toronto, on the currencies of hospitality, which Fortan has been researching since 2017. Sylvie, welcome to the show. Thank you. So your bio references that you are a curator, researcher, critic, and editor. I do want to ask you to elaborate a little further, though, on perhaps some of the ways that being a curator has shown up in, in your work yeah. over the last couple of decades. I would say that, you know, writing for me is a way of doing research. So, um, so it's, yeah, I guess a curator does two things. You're, you're working always on specific, uh, I would say, near and mid-future project. So the show I'm doing now, the show I'm doing in three years, you sort of know where you're going. And of course, you focus a lot of energy on that. But if that's all you do, um, you're actually not keeping up with contemporary practice. And so the other part of your work is simply to be engaged and aware and um, to travel, to see, to talk to artists and have a sense of where um, the multiple directions in which contemporary practice is going. And that constantly informs your near projects. But um, you can't just be working one project after the other, because that's not curating, that's programming. You know, curating is a, is a kind of an intellectual practice that uh, brings together um Various, and that's why it's so exciting because you can bring together the sort of perhaps, you know, what we would typically call maybe more uh, of an academic practice with a political practice and a social practice. You're, you're pulling from philosophy. You're pulling from music. You're pulling from literature. You're pulling from, of course, um, you know, practices that are uh, perhaps easier to name as artistic practices. You're also choreographing the future because that's what, you know, the display part of the exhibition, when you come to place things in space, you're not just placing things in space, but you're also creating moments when bodies will come closer to each other or further from each other. And so the experience of the work is not one of sort of disembodied eyeballs. It's, um, you know, objects and architecture that sort of channel and make possible encounters and also disallow other kinds of encounters. So, you know, that's, um, 
you know, that is the way that for me, a curator works. So when I'm a critic and looking at exhibitions, I very much cast that gaze onto them. So it's not just about, is this great work? Is this an interesting curatorial premise? It's also, how is it delivered? What the, what is actually happening in space? For example, if you're not really careful, and I've seen that many times, you know, there can be a premise or an intention of the curator, but the architecture of the exhibition actually undoes that. Instead of creating community and creating a platform for dialogue, the walls are narrow, um, the, the works are too close to each other, and so there cannot be that sort of... Um, I would say that, you know, what I would call the choreography is, is really poorly done. Um, so as a critic, I look at all of these levels. So it's not just, is, is this a great selection of work, but how am I encountering this alone and with other people? And how does that inflect um, what is actually, you know, in the space? You have a really robust resume of work and interaction with these different types of platforms and different types of art and artists. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's perhaps in, from your large body of work, an illustration of either an artist or an exhibition that involved you pulling together some of these threads of writing as research, uh, research perhaps creating some kind of thesis that you wanted to then mm -hmm. critique in a way and then curate something out of mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, quite a few, I would say probably most of my <laughs> projects are. <laughs> but I mean, I'll give you like a, maybe an early example and a more recent example. Um, so flashback to uh, the sort of, you know, Y2K moment. And some of the listeners will probably remember the frenzy around that. Um, and so that was a really interesting moment to work uh, as a cultural producer and I was living and working in Ottawa, uh, which is the national capital of Canada, a place much like Washington, D.C., where you perform the theater of nationhood. Um, and that really shapes both the, uh, the urban fabric and the encounter with, with people. Um, it's a space of diplomacy. Um, it's a space uh, that is both you know, very localized and at the same time, very international. So all of these things are, you know, really important to that locality. And I always work very much in the context of a locality, like what is the place where I'm working? So this was Ottawa. It was Y2K. We uh, had the, the museum I was working at was right downtown, a place where you would see long lines of limousine constantly driving by, you know, such and such minister, such and such uh, prime minister from another country, Hillary Clinton being in town or what have you. So at that time, also, it was sort of not the, the you know, it wasn't the beginning of the Internet, but it was still, you know, the first sort of five, six years, the moment when it was becoming much more um, sort of available to many people. So, reflecting on the role of the gallery, the place where I was, I decided, okay, let's turn one of the gallery spaces for nine months into uh, a communication central. So, at this moment in time, the only role that the museum fulfills is one of communication. And that was my premise at that time, that maybe the, the museum had left behind um, its exhibitionary role. And uh, that in a place like Ottawa, actually, there was so much going on already outside 
that the museum couldn't compete. So we turned the gallery into a communication central, and everything that we did for nine months was outside. People had to come to the gallery not to see art, but to get information about where to see it. Um, and the project was called In All the Wrong Places. And uh, the sites that we chose were multiple, and they were always driven by the artist projects. The temporality was variable also because contemporary practice is so diverse um, that the sort of illusion that we can fit all of it within the white walls and the white cube is, you know, it, 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 it's, it's absolutely wrong. So, um, the temporality of contemporary practices can go from 30 seconds to a lifetime. Um, how can we fit that in a three-month exhibition within so many square feet? So the idea was let's follow the practice where and when it happens, and, and this is what the institution should do. So we had a project that was simply a video cassette distributed in people's home anonymously. And so we picked a certain area code around based on how much money we had to produce the piece. And so the work was in people's mailbox. Um, other projects were more performative within the city. So, for example, we had this project that was very early um, polling that was both live polling as well as mail-in and internet polling. And we were basically creating this real-time ideal woman based on the survey. So we had people taking survey on the street and uh, people uh, mailing in their survey, and she was taking the form in real time of this ideal in Ottawa at this time. So we had a truck full of costume and um, actors, and every hour she was refreshed and uh, would sort of materialize in the space, and on and on and on. So this was very much in conversation with a number of of, um, of also uh, philosophers and writers. One uh, author in particular, Miwon Kwan, and she'd written a, t a text that at that time was very, um, very important for a number of people. And I had some serious questions to that text. And so part of the, the this exhibition was kind of answering and following up um, on that intervention. And she then became involved with the project and wrote a follow-up text that sort of reflected on that dialogue and those questions and that criticism. So yeah, uh, complete uh, feedback loop. And a more recent project would be, you know, the, the three biennials that I have done, uh, where at this, you sort of again expand and the, the entire city becomes the museum because a biennial is, al is always multi-sided. So um, you're using several art institutions, but also non-art spaces. And then the challenge is to kind of choreograph that encounter in space-time, but that space-time is that of the entire city. So what you need to think about is what happens between sites as people are driving or walking or biking. What is that experience? Because that experience informs the encounter that is next. It also informs what just happened. So we don't just, you know, encounter art in the space and we close the door and that was over and then we're in like our normal life and then we open a door again and this is the art space and then we close it again. It doesn't work like that, of course, right? Um, the experience of any artistic encounter is, you know, from the moment you leave your house, you know, what happens on the highway as you're driving? Are you having a hard time finding parking? you know, can you have a coffee? All of that is part of your ability to encounter the work. And, and so a biennial is a great um, 
space, a great laboratory, because you are working in and across neighborhoods and communities and mobilizing people, often in parts of the city that they're not, you know, going to every day. Um, and also it's an open-ended trajectory because we don't all start at the same place. So you have to think of the exhibition in, you know, that has, you know, hundreds of entry points and it has to work in that way as well. So, yeah, it's a fascinating way to, to, uh, begin to think about the work and, and really expanding the thinking beyond just what we do as the intentionality of the curator to go to how will people encounter this and thinking in this dialogical way. I wonder if, and to what extent, and how, place in geographical terms and maybe in non-geographical terms might be an influence for you in some way. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a starting point always. It's a starting point, but it's also sometimes, a, you know, if you cannot deal with place um, physically, this is when the text is um, another kind of space or place. Um, so perhaps when there is an inability or you're not quite up to the task of that space yet, because space is very demanding and place is very demanding. And so um, sometimes having the humility to say, well, I need to maybe approach this through writing as I'm sort of learning uh, more about the place to then come back. So this is when you have these extensions that are, again, you know, work in, in, in complementary ways. But yes, I would say that also in my practice, I've moved a lot. And this is something that I decided, uh, very early on. It was one of the sort of my life, uh, I decided that I was going to move at least every five years. And to me, that was very important because, um, my thinking is often shaped by my daily life. And I thought that this would, by moving all the time, you keep sort of attuned and engaged and maybe you see things uh, differently than if you're just in one place. You know, so, so I have moved every five years uh, and pretty much. So in, in doing so, 
you begin to understand place in a, from, you know, maybe this is naive, but for me, I think in a much more complex and sophisticated way, you don't take anything for granted because you learn that place is something it's, that is not only always shifting, but that reveals itself to you gradually. So it's like an onion, right? It has many, many layers. So I think the challenge is that you think that even if you're born there to think that you know a place, um, you know, because there's always one more layer to the onion. So I think you approach a place by doing a lot of research and you come up with some, for me anyhow, some hypothesis or, or questions because you need to enter into something from somewhere. So they're kind of your for me, the first kind of questions. And as you're asking these questions and digging and meeting people and doing your research, then the onion starts to open up. And you realize that actually, maybe the question you wanted to ask is not, but you have to start somewhere. So you said that places reveal themselves to you over time as you yes. ask it questions. Yes. And I, I want to ask you how you have revealed, or rather, how you have been revealed to yourself by place? <laughs> that is such a great question. I don't know that I can answer that, but I'll try. <laughs> it's a great question, but I've never actually thought about that. Um, well, I would say that first, I don't know. First of all, I think it's um, you move, but you don't move just anywhere. So there is some intentionality in that. Each move is because um, you think that this place will allow you to explore something that you're already interested in. Uh, I was mentioning Ottawa and or a nation's capital as this, you know, as a space of the theater of the nation. So at that time, I was very, very interested in, you know, in the demise of the nation state um, and, and trying to understand its empty forms. And so I thought, you've got to go right in there to understand this. Now that sort of demise of the nation state takes on different forms. It's still a demise. It's just the theater has different curtains. <laughs> um, yeah, and 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 so I I didn't end up just anywhere. There was questions. Um, I ended and then I spent quite a bit of time in the South. I thought it was a place from which to really understand what the United States was. Um, you know, a much more. Um, I would say I was much closer to, say, a place like New York. And I thought, okay, I need to, to really understand this place uh, and to be engaged, uh, to be involved, to be critical. Um, I don't want to just have it theoretically. I need to understand this. So let's spend a good chunk of time there to understand, um, you know, the complexities of the notions of history, the sort of ongoing sort of never-ending afterlives of the Civil War, um, and then how does one as a cultural producer work in a place like this? Um, what space is there? What space can we open up? So when you say how it's revealed different aspects of me, I would say that it's shaped the next question. So I think, you know, you go somewhere, you learn a number of things, and then some questions become more pressing than others, and then you try to, to sort of angle your research in that. So for me, coming to Omaha was very important because the part of the U.S. that I still don't know and don't understand is the Midwest. And I thought I would come and learn about this 
you know, great big center of the country. And yeah, and really learn and uh, start asking the questions that I know how to ask now. And hopefully in three years when we talk again, I'll have a whole new series of questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do want to ask you a different question about, about you. But for now, what is the pressing question? Right. Yes. Well, right now it's, um, you know, I'm doing this project, which is, uh, which I call right now on the currencies of hospitality. I really want to, um, I think to make it really short and sweet to find a way in which we can, uh, think of ourselves as being, uh, firmly rooted in one place and to recognize that we are also all global citizens with global, you know, networks and responsibility. To me, that is the most pressing question. Out of that question, everything else, um, you know, everything is encompassed by that question, economic questions, environmental questions. So how, you know, how to not retreat in, in kind of grotesque form of, of localism, which range from, um, you know, the sort of, uh, of course, you know, forms of patriotism to the, you know, things that you would think is the opposite, but actually I'm not sure is the opposite. Um, some forms of, you know, uh, drink local, think local, grow local. So how, you know, how do we think of that local, um, as being really specific, but also totally a part of this great spaceship earth, right? Um, so to me, that's really, really important. And I think that this is a place from which to think about that. You've been exploring this mm -hmm. idea of what hospitality yes. is and how it might be interpreted and then manifested by people and communities yes. for at least a couple of years yes. now. Mm -hmm. And you are, at the Bemis, continuing that exploration and curating yes. and critiquing and researching yes. and writing about different aspects of that. So perhaps tell us where this line of inquiry emerged from for you? I think I first, uh, well, I, I first thought about it and began talking to friends about it in 2012. And in 2012, um, you know, what was really clear to me was uh, what I saw as two failures. 
failures of things that I really care about. First, um, a political failure of hospitality. And of course, uh, in 2012 uh, was the beginning of the war in Syria. Uh, we had had already a number of years of uh, Mediterranean migration on a massive scale. Also, the realization that um, a growing number of people around the world um, are currently stateless and have been stateless for many generations. People who were born and have lived and have had their children and their grandchildren in refugee camps, you know, all of those. And, and you know, um, of course, we could see already um, in the U.S. talk of internal relocation, mostly from people in Louisiana, um, you know, so, so this... For, this um, caused by environmental questions. And so, you know, this, this utter failure of political hospitality. And simultaneously, I kind of, yeah, I guess became aware or start, started to kind of theorize this failure of, um, of what I now call aesthetic hospitality. And it's something I'm writing about right now, but looking at all the terms that we have um, developed to talk about art since the Second World War um, and how um, one term kind of spins off another term and spins off another, another term. And if I looked at all of these, um, this language that we've developed, um, the thing that was kind of unacknowledged and kind of kicked down the road was uh, this question of hospitality. So I thought, it's interesting that aesthetically and politically, we've kind of hit this wall, and we're kind of running around in circle. And it's as if there's different narrative models, but, you know, that there's no end to this. It's sort of a perfect system with no exit and no future. And that's impossible. That's untenable. So how how am I going to do this? And then at the same time, realizing that, you know, you look at your computer and, or you look on a website and you have a homepage and, uh, your service is provided by a host. And so, you know, at the same time, I kind of saw all of these, um, terms all around me from, you know, various sphere of contemporary life. So I thought, okay, it's interesting. So there's a ubiquity of, of, of hospitality. It's been kind of spun differently. And there's this failure. So let me set on this journey to retool um, and to learn from people in different fields how hospitality is driving their research, their practice, and so on. So that's the journey that I've embarked on. Um, so radical retooling uh, through uh, learning from people in different fields of inquiry, scientific, um, aesthetic, daily life, survival, um, to ultimately come back to questions of, of politics and aesthetics. So how has that looked for you then for the last few years? So this yes, is yes. clearly it's an organic process yes. because your yes. engagement with this subject yes. has begun possibly a little more formally around 2012, but it's ongoing. That's part yes. of your work at the right. Bemis and elsewhere. Yes. Um, so how has maybe some tentative answers and maybe even some more questions mm -hmm. been um, shown or curated or mm -hmm. um, written about by sure. you? Yes. So um, I so I thought about it in 2012. I became the director of the Montreal Biennial in 2013. So I kind of put it on hold for a number of years. And 
And then it just kept on becoming more and more urgent. It seemed to me like everything around me, you know, the world was falling to pieces and, and um, the art world was um, being manipulated more and more by hedge fund investors. And, and so this, these two failures were just growing and growing. Um, and so then I uh, decided that, okay, I needed this project um, was very important. And also colleagues of mine and friends would say, so are you still working on that project? And I would go, oh, no, I've, you know, I don't have time. So first I would add the methodology, because for me, each project also has a different um, strategy. The project defines um, the way that I approach it. So looking into hospitality, I decided that I needed to develop the project under conditions of hospitality. So what that's meant is that since 2017, I don't have a permanent, I don't have a home. Um, the project is developed exclusively through um, artistic residency, such as Bemis's program. And that uh, because what you produce is a direct result of the conditions of production, you know. And so I wanted to develop this project under conditions of hospitality where I would be the host, but also the host can sometimes become the guest. And so uh, that sort of negotiation of, um, of these positions is an integral part of the project. And also developing it with often, as is the case in many residencies, with other artists um, who are also guests for a moment of time. So it's a way to think of this model, which is the artist residency and its place within the contemporary art ecology, which will be one of the chapters that I'll be writing about. But more importantly, to kind of uh, use that structure to develop the project. So then the uh, challenge was to locate uh, the people who I wanted to be in conversation with. And those people are all around the world. So look, looking at, for example, um, who is looking, who is doing this sort of really interesting research on taxoplasmosis, which... Uh, is what people refer to as a cat disease, which is basically a single cell organism that um, uh, th that many people have in their body. About fifty percent of humans have it, um, but it can be lethal to women who are pregnant if they contract it during the pregnancy. It's also um, kind of the object of all kinds of uh, urban legends uh, of humans being taken over by their cats. Um, so there is a wonderful researcher in Glasgow who has been able to prove that these single-cell organisms can communicate at great distance at tremendous speed, much faster than our computers and our brains. And so going to work with this woman because I, you know, she is the one that um, is is really looking at uh, both the hosting and the guessing and the transmission in a really interesting way. So the first part was really kind of doing a lot of research to find out who are the people doing this research and then contacting them, saying, do you want to play with me? <laughs> you know, can we explore this together? And, and then uh, finding a structure that could host me. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's sort of a complex puzzle. And the other challenge with this project is, you know, within academia and the art world and many other spheres, we all talk about interdisciplinarity. 
but uh, often it's just uh, two silos with a little bridge in between. For this project, the way that I'm working it is is sort of jumping from silo to silo in the hope that that sort of shifting from one field of research to the other will allow me to see connections that I can't see if I'm just digging for one year in one side, digging for the other year in, in the other. So, for example, I was in the Balkans for six months uh, this year and uh, looking mostly at questions of the legacies of the non-aligned movement, the legacy of self uh, of worker self-determination in former Yugoslavia, and uh, the experience of being within one lifetime, uh, both a refugee and now a host. As, uh, as you know, many people were refugees. People my age and are all, everyone in this room's age were refugees when they were young or teenagers and are now in a position to host or choose to not host uh, migrants from Syria. So this is a place where, you know, you've, within a lifetime you occupy both position. So I thought there's a lot to learn from that. So looking at these questions, which are mo- more, I would say, political, to then uh, moving to a residency in, North- in Northern California to work with marine biologists. So uh, looking at environmental questions. So shifting back and forth like this, um, in, in the research and the writing, I hope will open gateways and, and allow us to see, uh, again, to see where we are right now in a different way. begun some of this exhibiting curation yes. at the Bemis yes. and I can't remember the artist's names now but um, the subject matter is birdsong yes and I think that's an exhibition happening at the Bemis in November in November yes what's the title of that we still don't know oh okay yeah so there's a there will be an exhibition yes uh, that, that you are facilitating curating yes. Around birdsong as part of this yes. long form yes. examination of what hospitality yes. means. Yes. Could you? So, sure. So, could you just give us a little insight into yeah. what that is? When one thinks about currencies of hospitality and, and tries to grapple with what that <laughs> might mean, I don't know that birdsong is the first thing that jumps to right. mind. So, I think it's really sure. fascinating. Yes. Yes. So, I'm working with two fantastic artists, Richard. Ibgi and Mary Lou Lemons, and they are uh, from Canada, just outside of Montreal. Their work often looks at um, economics and uh, science and the ways in which language has been developed to communicate these things, which are quite abstract. 
here at Bemis, talking about, again, site and being located, um, one of the things that I became aware of and was interested in was the, um, the love of people in, in Nebraska for birds um, of various kinds. And, and then just doing research and realizing how many people are birders or um, bird lovers or bird owners. It was just like, wow, okay, this is something that is specific to this area and is super interesting. And so they are currently here and uh, doing a one-month uh, research residency. And we've been, uh, we did a, a whole lot of work reaching out to people in the community and, uh, and finding amazing people to work with. So we have partners at uh, the zoo. Uh, we are also working with the Laboratory for Avian Biology at the University of Nebraska and uh, other individuals who just, um, scientists and, uh, and, and citizens around the project. And the project is looking at the relationship between, um, I would say, territory or habitat and hospitality. So that's the way I'm seeing it. So that is the connection. Um, so we often think of hospitality in human terms, right, around a house, welcoming someone in your house or having someone for dinner. But that language has also transpired with um you know, with biology and, and other terms. And so often these, the old story was that animals were territorial and, uh, that, you know, it was a way in which, I mean, it was cast all around ownership. So the bird owns this territory and will fight the other one for the territory. And, um, it's all about reproduction, of course, because the territory is linked to, uh, the sort of genetic continuity. And that's kind of a boring story. Um, you know, I mean, I, birds are much more complex than that. So the question then is, um, you know, if we think, if you open up the thinking around habitat to the framework of hospitality, what does it, what questions make, does it sort of, uh, raise and, and how might you look at this differently? And so the current research, the, the more recent research around birds, of course, covers all of this. And many, uh, researchers have proven that birds cohabitate very well on multiple levels with, you know, not just other birds, but all kinds of species, um, that, uh, they learn each other's language, uh, that perhaps they actually support each other's, uh, communities and that much of this is done through bird song. So the project is, is looking at this as well as the relationship between humans and birds. And at first, um, the project was, we thought it would be looking more at, uh, perhaps again, birdsong as a form of communication between humans and birds. And now the project has moved more, more towards questions of caring. So how do you human, uh, communicate with birds through care? So feeding, uh, cleaning, uh, housing, uh, manipulating, and likewise, how do birds care for humans? Um, so that has been the focus of the project so far. So m moving the communication from strictly an oral communication to one that encompasses language of the body. So thinking then about home 
what was your home like and and how would you uh, what would you share about your childhood my father was in the merchant marine um and my mom was a stay-at-home mom uh, i grew up on the st lawrence river and i like to always tell the story because i think it's important that time for me was marked by this lighthouse so in my bed my entire sort of childhood there was this lighthouse and this is sort of how space and time was measured and living on the St. Lawrence River there were always ships coming and going and of course um as a kid you quickly asked where are they coming from and where are they going who's on them what's their life like what's in the ship and so right away you understand your place within a kind of borderless place right because you never quite can tell where they come from or and it's also a place that has a large national park nearby and uh very wild and so the other thing that so I would see the lighthouse and on kind of an auditory level it was wolves that we heard you know that's the kind of soundscape and i think that that's uh that's been really really important for me like there's always been a notion that here i was you know here on this ground with all of these ships coming and going and it's just part of you know the universe and um and on the other side are these wild creatures and on you know so yeah i don't know if you as a human being were always ready to render porous all these other boundaries that we typically see around us or if this was a formative experience for you and yeah. how you've as it were turned out as an adult was mm. was shaped by these youthful yeah. experiences yeah i don't know it's just like i never thought that there were limits you know like you know because i i would talk with my friends about these things and it's like i just never thought yeah you just if you wanted to go you went and that was it so yeah so the notion of limits is something that i became aware much later on um so i think my also my yeah my family was uh you know very supportive in so many ways and i think the the i and now i realize being a parent um what they were doing is just um looking at the person that was in front of them so i think my experience is radically different from my siblings experience because we were radically different you know um i think i was very mature very early very responsible adventurous but responsible so i was given a lot of freedom um my other siblings had different characteristics so they were given different freedoms it feels really alluring this idea of autonomy and curiosity and freedom and a life without limits yet i wonder if you've also had to come to terms with or accept or adapt to maybe more uh, challenging or negative mm-hmm. elements of being i don't want to use the word rootless because you do have roots right. but but you've built into your life a degree mm-hmm. of fluidity mm-hmm. and uh, sort of um, this uh, temporiness mm-hmm. yeah um i don't know i mean i have this wide circle of friends so it it's rare that i will go somewhere where i don't already know someone and so that's i mean that's how it feels and it also um it you know and and it's that's sort of a circle of friends that i share with all my friends so if someone is going somewhere it's like call so and so and meet so and so and that just feels like 
my life and, and wherever I am, also my house is always very open. So already so many of my friends have come through Oma and I've only been here two months and over the next three years it will be sort of an endless, you know, because all of a sudden if you're somewhere people go, oh, I've never been there, let's go. And, and um, so I would say that it's this uh, very large uh, family of people who help, very, very large family of people who help each other um, in all kinds of personal and professional ways. And for example, when my daughter was a teenager and she wanted to travel, she'd always go, who do you know in Barcelona? Who do you know here? And we would just email and she could stay there. And I know she would save, she'd be safe. So, um, and as far as limits, um, well, sometimes if you go initially to a place where you don't understand the language, it's a different um, sort of series of encounters. But, you know, that quickly sort of vanishes. You know, it's like maybe it's difficult for a couple of weeks and then you find a way <laughs> somehow, um, you know, and people see you and they they know, okay, she doesn't speak the language, but it's okay. Um, yeah. You've built a life with question upon question upon question and you've pursued that. Is there some existential theme that forms an art throughout your life? Togetherness. Yeah. I've been in conversation with Sylvie Fortin, an independent art curator and critic and the current curator in residence at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts. It's been very rewarding and a real pleasure to have a chat with you. Thanks, Sylvie. Thank you. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.